Congress has to be the one that appropriates any funds from the Treasury. That's the power of the purse that Congress has. And if we lose that, then we'll lose the country. Mark Chenoweth is president and general counsel for the new Civil Liberties Alliance, which brings cases against the government when it violates constitutional freedoms. Today we discuss three major lawsuits he is currently prosecuting, the Cato Institute versus the Department of Education. There just isn't explicit language giving the Secretary of Education the ability to cancel the debt of 43 million people at a cost of over half a trillion dollars. Missouri versus Biden. But there definitely seems to be communication within the government about how to achieve this goal of censoring people that I think Americans are going to find disturbing. And Hogue versus Newsom. I think of it as the Sovietization of science and medicine, because this is the kind of thing you would expect in the Soviet Union under Lysenko. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Mark Chenoweth, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Good to be with you. Well, you are involved, or your organization is involved, in a number of incredibly high-profile cases, some of which are at the Supreme Court as we speak. You know, we're looking at this case on the Biden loan forgiveness program, right? This is a huge one that you're doing. Another one which I've talked about extensively on this show, Missouri versus Biden. Looking into the discovery materials have shown us kind of unbelievable cooperation, almost unbelievable cooperation between the government and uh, uh, big tech. Um, and then finally, actually, you've got Hogue versus Newsom. I just, I, I didn't even know the name of it until today. I just, but I call it, you know, the case challenging the law that I call uh, prevent doctors from doctoring in, uh, in California. So we're going to talk about all of this today. It's, Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> They're all important topics. Absolutely. Well, so let's start with this, the loan forgiveness. And like the, the bottom line is, I keep hearing from people that this rule, this approach is just simply illegal, right? But but I think you're the one who can actually tell me, is that true and how true is it? Yeah. Right. So it's it's very true and it's illegal six ways from Sunday or maybe 12. I mean, it's this is such an illegal act by the administration that uh, we could take as much time as you have really to detail all the various ways in which this is illegal. But maybe the the clearest uh, reason why it's illegal is there's just no statutory authority uh, for the Secretary of Education uh, to do what he has done. And federal departments, federal agencies, they don't have any power to act unless Congress gives them that power. And here Congress has not given the Secretary of Education the power to forgive or cancel student loan debt anywhere like this. Uh, in fact, Congress has only done minor debt cancellations in the past with very specific sorts of recipients in mind and you have to qualify for that cancellation based on criteria that have limited it pretty significantly. Now what Congress has done more broadly, uh, and they did this in the CARES Act right at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, they put into place a six-month moratorium, essentially a, a forbearance, where they said that students with student loan debt, federal student loan debt, did not have to pay principal or interest payments on that for six months. That wasn't a cancellation of debt, it was just a forbearance. Uh, and so the idea that, that you could take from that any ability to cancel debt is really just wrong from a legal standpoint. 
one of the big questions, right, in people's minds is, you know, it, it feels like it's just kind of shifting the burden because someone has to pay. One of the big kind of complaints against this idea is it just kind of shifts the burden from the people that took the loans out to some other people, right, the taxpayers, broadly speaking. So is there, is there, what is, what is the legality around this? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that fairness question because it came up in oral argument uh, at the Supreme Court this past week. And, and Chief Justice Roberts, which I don't think of him as necessarily the person most likely to bring up a fairness uh, argument, but, uh, but he did. He said, you know, what about the, the, the kid who uh, took out a loan for a lawn care company and then was devastated by the pandemic or, you know, whatever, whatever other kinds of small business type situations you might imagine. And the, the answers that that both the Solicitor General of the U.S. had and that other justices had was, well, we don't judge a law by how it affects other people. We judge it by how it affects the people who are, who are covered by it because Congress has made that determination to give certain people relief and maybe not other people, and that's not a, an argument against that particular law. Well, that would be fine if Congress had passed this, but Congress didn't pass this. This is something that has been really created out of whole cloth by the Secretary of Education, and that creates a few different problems from a legality standpoint. One of them that got a lot of play in the oral argument was whether or not the lines that were drawn by the Secretary in crafting this were arbitrary and capricious lines. And that's a, that's a bit of jargon that under what's called the Administrative Procedure Act, pretty much any regulation that uh, is passed by a federal department or agency has to satisfy that test of not being arbitrary or, or capricious. And it, what it means is that when you're drawing the lines of who qualifies and who doesn't and so forth, you have to provide, the secretary has to provide sufficient justification for why he drew the lines where he did. He can't just say, oh, we're going to forgive the, all the debt of women but not men, or all the debt of, of, uh, of people of a certain race but not another race, or Catholics but not anybody else. And those would all be arbitrary uh, distinctions. And so one of the concerns with the lines that were drawn is he said, we're going to give $10,000 of, of debt relief to certain folks and $20,000 to other folks and nothing to other folks. Well, where did he come up with those lines? Congress would be allowed to draw lines like that, but it's not clear that the secretary has the power to just arbitrarily decide who does and doesn't give get debt relief. In fact, I would say it's clear that he does not have the authority to do that. Those who support what the secretary has done would say, well, what about the HEROES Act of 2003 that was passed in the wake of 9-11 of to give soldiers... Uh, some debt relief, and the idea was, if you're if you're going off to war and you you may be getting paid less as a soldier than you were getting paid in the private sector if you're getting called up from reserve duty or something like that, and maybe you won't be able to make your student loan payments now. And so the idea was to give the Secretary of Education at that point some ability to help soldiers out in that situation. Even then, that was never used to forgive a single debt. It was used to postpone debt, to, to give some forbearance, but it was never used to cancel any student loan debt. But now it has been. Now the Secretary of Education has taken that law because there's a provision in it that's, that gives the Secretary the ability to quote unquote waive or modify any provision of Title IV of the Act, which is the one that has to do with student loan uh, debt. What the, what the Solicitor General has said essentially is that waive or modify language that Congress used gave the Secretary the keys to the kingdom and he can do whatever he wants. He can modify this act to basically forgive anything. Right. That's what you're saying? That's basically what, what he's done. Is he's, that, he's, that sounds he, unbelievable. It is unbelievable. He's, um, he's taken the provisions that, that had limitations on any sort of, of 
uh, forgiveness or cancellation, and he's just waived those provisions. And then he's modified it by adding in people to qualify for debt who Congress didn't have in there. And this really bothered the Chief Justice. And he said, well, now, wait a minute. Waive or modify doesn't mean anything. I mean, there was a, there was a, a case called uh, MCI several years ago where Justice Scalia said, you know, usually when we talk about modify, we mean that it has to be sort of close to what there was there originally. I mean, you could say that the French Revolution modified the status of the nobility in France, but that's not, you know, that he said, Stre he said stretching the word a little bit. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think he said only because the English language allows for understatement and sarcasm. You know, it's not, that's not exactly what we mean when we use the word modify. The Solicitor General's response to that was, well, this is broader than that. It's waive or modify. But the, I, the Chief Justice didn't seem to be buying that. He seemed to think that it didn't say you could waive debt, it said you could waive certain provisions. And the other thing that states said, which I thought was a very good point, the secretary didn't even waive these provisions because they still apply. People who, who have student loan debt can still treat the law as though those provisions are still there. So it's not as though he was really waiving provisions, he was just redlining, and uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett said this, so he just red penciled the whole thing. He just took out what he didn't like and added in other things. And the, the government admits that that's what the secretary did. Not at all clear that, that you can do that. What does the term statutory authority actually mean? Just very briefly sure. for the benefits of our audience. Yeah, It means that Congress has, has passed a, a, an explicit law giving a particular department or agency the ability uh, to do something. And I see. no one doubts that the Secretary of Education is the right person who would be responsible for the student loan question. But that doesn't mean he gets to do whatever he wants in that territory. He, he only has the power that Congress gives him. Okay. Yeah, very simple. But what's very interesting is, you know, a big top or common topic that has come up on this program is Congress essentially ceding its rights or it's, or it's basically it's, it's work to the bureaucracy or to these to the agencies, so to speak. Maybe 20 years or so, you could say, yes, there's a slow drip of this. We see it happening. And certainly this is something that the new Civil Liberties Alliance was, was created to, to stop. And we're trying to turn off the spigot. What we've seen in this administration in particular is it's a fire hose now. I mean, practically everything this administration has done uh, has been of this sort, of, of really treating the administrative agencies as though they're empowered to do things that they just aren't empowered to do. So you look at the nationwide eviction moratorium, which interestingly also started in the CARES Act. So Congress had, had created a four month, uh, they had said for four months in federally subsidized housing, you can't evict somebody. That was what the CARES Act said. Well then, the, originally the Trump administration and then the Biden administration for many more months came in and said, okay, we're gonna extend this nationwide and we're gonna say it's all housing, not just federally subsidized housing. And eventually that made it to the Supreme Court. And when it did, the Supreme, in a case called Alabama Realtors, the Supreme Court said, now wait a minute, Congress said four months, federally subsidized housing, you can't just take that language and the, the CDC doesn't have the, the power, it's quarantine power doesn't give it the ability to stop evictions nationwide and shut down all of the landlord-tenant courts across the entire country, which is what had happened. So I think what the Supreme Court's gonna do here is something similar. They're gonna say, well, the CARES Act had this for six months, but it didn't give the secretary the ability to do this indefinitely. The ramifications of that decision are so massive, right? I mean, on a national scale, 
how many millions of people and like deeply affected. I mean, in, let's say in both directions, some not needing to pay, some suddenly not having revenue to pay for their buildings or right, whatnot, right? right? Well, lots of people and, lost properties that they had lots of money invested in. Absolutely, and so and so the idea that the CDC could make a rule like this and like almost you know basically ignoring that re almost ignoring that reality to someone like me and perhaps some of it seems unbelievable right that you that that could happen right i think it was unbelievable and and i i think that folks had not planned for that possibility at all they weren't assuming that risk when they purchased these properties and that's it's one of the reasons we need to have the rule of law in this country and we need to have the the laws change slowly when Congress is involved. This was very deliberate on the part of our founders when they set up the Constitution. It's bicameralism and presentment. You have to get something through the House of Representatives and the Senate. That's very difficult to do. And then you have to get the president's signature. That's presentment. And if something doesn't go through all of those steps, then it's not law. And yet what we see from this administration time and time again is they want to use an executive order or some sort of shortcut or some sort of action where they have a, a secretary or a, or a head of an agency go back, look at vague statutory language in some old law, and pretend that that old vague language gives them powers that no one had ever discovered before. And you, you, you look at, back to student loans, when Nancy Pelosi was the Speaker of the House, she said Congress had to be involved, that this wasn't something the Secretary of Education could do on his own. People think that the President of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone, he can delay, but he does not have that power. That would that has to be an act of Congress. Uh, and yet, they somehow forgot that once this uh, action uh, had taken place. And we need to get back to that constitutional regime where it's our elected officials in the House and the Senate that make these sort of momentous decisions, as you're talking about. But, uh, but certainly, at least four or five of those six justices seem to be very aware of the administrative state problem and the fact that too much power has slipped the grasp of Congress and that it's their job as the, as the judicial branch to ensure that the, the separation of powers that is in the constitutional design is sustained. And so the particular way that, that they're trying to, to go about that is a doctrine that they've come up with called the Major Questions Doctrine. And it has developed over about a 25-year period, if you go back to the, to the late 90s, early 2000s, you can see antecedents of, of this idea. Uh, going back to a case called Brown and Williamson, where the FDA was trying to regulate tobacco, and the Supreme Court said, eh, Congress has not given the FDA authority to do this. It's thought about it many times. It's always failed. You can't just decide that you have this, that you have this authority. Uh, and then there have been a series of other cases, but it's really been within the last few years, including the Alabama Realtors case, including uh, about nationwide eviction moratoriums, including the OSHA vaccine mandate case, and then finally in a case called West Virginia v. EPA, which had to do with the, the Clean Water Act, uh, or, or uh, excuse me, had to, had to do with EPA regulation. Now, now I'm suddenly blanking whether it's Clean Air Act or Clean, Clean Water Act. Uh, but, the, but the particular outcome of that case was to say that uh, Essentially, you can't find elephants in mouse holes. You can't take a particular vague or small piece of statutory language and blow out a huge new program from that, you know, from that, uh, 
small piece of statutory language that the ex you can think of it as a clear statement principle if you want to that that the Supreme Court is going to look at statutory language and if an agency or department is 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 uh, reading that to give them vast power then the court is going to expect the language to be much more explicit and what we see in in all those cases that I mentioned and then also in the student loan case there just isn't explicit language giving the Secretary of Education the ability to cancel the debt of 43 million people and at a cost of over half a trillion dollars. There's just not explicit language to do that. And so I think that the Chief Justice brought it up three times at oral argument. Isn't this a major questions problem? Doesn't this look like major questions? Isn't this, doesn't this fit very closely with our previous major questions cases? So I think that the Chief at least, and, and I suspect because he's often the swing justice uh, on the current court. I suspect that if that's where he is, then you're going to see a majority of the justices on the court decide that this is a violation of the major questions doctrine and they're going to set aside the, this rule on that basis. There's sort of like this attitude um, in government today where you want to do something and you know the rules are kind of an impediment. So you can, you know, you, you get your, you know, tough, best legal minds to go in and hunt for any excuse, right, through the history. Rummage. Rummage is that what it's, that what it's yeah, called. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think that's absolutely correct, and that makes me think of two things, Jan. So first, it reminds me of how I got involved in this in the first place, which is I was an attorney at the Consumer Product Safety Commission. I was legal counsel to uh, Commissioner Ann Northup, who was one of the minority Republican commissioners uh, under President Obama at the agency. And there had been a law passed in 2008, signed right at the tail end of the Bush administration, uh, the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act of 2008, trying to deal with uh, lead on toys and things coming in from China. I joined about the time when the agency was implementing that law and putting rules into practice. And so I saw from the inside how the agency treated the statute that Congress had passed. And it wasn't this sort of faithful effort to read the statute and try to implement it as best as possible and figure out, well, what did Congress really mean by this? No, far from it. It was, how can we expand our authority as an agency as much as possible to cover as much territory as possible? How can we relitigate these things that we lost in the debates on Capitol Hill and pretend that we have this power that was never given to us? And, and that wasn't how I was taught administrative law in, in law school. And I said, wait a minute, if this is how this is really working in practice at this agency, we've got a major problem on our hands because that means that Congress isn't really in control anymore. Once it, once it sort of passes a law and turns things over to administrative agencies, Katie, bar the door. And, and I think that's what we are. The second thing that, uh, that I think that this reminds me of is that the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice looked at this action by the administration uh, to cancel student loan debt. And it had a couple of things to say about the debt. It's, it said, like, even under the broadest interpretation of the HEROES Act, it still says that you can't put students in a better position than they were before the law went in, or before the, the emergency went into effect. In this case, we'd be talking about the pandemic. Except this, the way, what, the secretary, what the Secretary of Education has done has actually put people in a better position because no one had $10,000 in debt canceled before the pandemic. That wasn't the position they were in. In fact, Jan, I would argue that because of the forbearance, and we'll put to one side whether the forbearance was legal, because as I said, Congress approved it for, uh, for a limited time, and it went beyond that. But putting that to the side, uh, 
because students weren't making principal or interest payments, and they're still not, by the way, because it's been extended, I think, until two months past the decision in this case, whenever that comes out, uh, they haven't, you know, they're not worse off. They, they haven't had to make any payments. Their, their debt hasn't been increasing. So how can you argue that they need this debt cancellation to put them in the same position that they were before the pandemic or that they would have been in but for the, the pandemic? Uh, but also there's been inflation during that whole period of time and economists will tell you that inflation helps the debtor because you're now paying back the same amount of debt with inflated dollars and that's what these students will be will be doing when they start making the repayments so the idea that they're that they're worse off than they would have been is very hard to justify and the office of legal counsel looked at this and, and they didn't say all the things I just said but they did say that look you can only make people back to where they were you can't make them better off and I think this statute, or excuse me, this regulation unquestionably makes students better off than they were, which is another reason why it's illegal. As we finish up this topic of the student debt, it's, it's basically Congress, I think, that has to say appropriate the money, right? Congress is the funder here. Is that, is that right? Yeah, th that's absolutely yeah. right. And the, the Solicitor General was trying to say that, you know, because this is a, a benefits program and not a sort of... Uh, liberty at stake program the way that maybe the landlord interests were in the uh, in the nationwide eviction moratorium case that the rule would somehow be different and that the major questions doctrine wouldn't apply but the appropriations clause of of article one of the constitution still applies and that says that congress has to be the one that appropriates any funds from the treasury that's the power of the purse that congress has and if we lose that then we'll lose the country because uh, it has to be the elected representatives. If the, if the executive is self-funding, then there's just no ability to rein that in. Justice Thomas brought this up at, at the oral argument, and the, the response was disappointing, I thought, from the government. They said, well, this isn't an appropriation from the Treasury uh, because this is debt that's being canceled. Well, there's a, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, the money was going to be going to the Treasury, so it's really the flip side of the same coin. The other issue is that in the early days of the Republic, we only had debt, so the idea that that, that somehow debt doesn't count as money being appropriated by, by Congress, I think is just wrong historically as an understanding of what counts as an appropriation or, or what the founders had in mind in using, in using that, that language. Okay. Typically when Congress cancels debt, they do appropriate funds. They'll, 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 they'll say, we're no longer going to, to charge this up, and up to $100 million or whatever. And they, they allow for a certain cap on what the spending is. The government wants to treat this like a new entitlement that doesn't matter if it costs 400, they don't even know how much it's gonna cost, 400 billion, 500 billion, 800 billion, they're not sure, there've been estimates over a trillion dollars that this program might cost before it's all said and done with no appropriation from Congress whatsoever. And I think that's another reason that the Supreme Court has is having not just second thoughts, but I think that they're going to put a stop to this. They, they understand that the separation of powers can't be protected if you have the executive spending a trillion dollars unauthorized. At the beginning of the Republic, it was all debt. Yeah. Well, that so that's really interesting, isn't it? So how, explain that. Well, just that the, the way the money worked back in those days, it was typically uh, there were private banks like the Bank of New York or what have you that would issue different kinds of, of debt instruments. And it was all, uh, currency wasn't used as much, it was more debt instruments that were exchanged. And so if, if debt instruments aren't treated as appropriations, then uh, that would really blow a giant 
loophole into the uh, into the appropriations clause and the power of Congress. You would essentially, at that point, I suppose the administration would say, well, any any agency or any department of the government that issues debt would be able to to cancel debt without the say so of Congress. Well, I, I mean, you can just think of what the the cost of that raw, would be. Exactly what the raw cost of that would be. Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely fascinating. Well, let's switch gears. Let's jump to what the case that most people are familiar with, Missouri versus Biden. Some of the discovery materials you guys were able to procure are, were, I mean. Eye-opening? <laughs> Eye-opening is, is a good word. Yeah, it seems like everyone's excited about that too here. But um, why don't I get you to do this? Summarize the case for me just in case anyone isn't familiar. Sure. And just let me know where we're at here with it. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so the, the case, for those who aren't familiar, uh, is a case where uh, the Attorney General of Missouri and the Attorney General of Louisiana are representing those states uh, in, the, uh, in the lawsuit, and the New Civil Liberties Alliance is representing four private plaintiffs uh, in the same lawsuit, and we're all suing uh, the administration, including Anthony Fauci and the Surgeon General uh, Vivek Murthy and, and several other administration officials, saying that those officials ordered Twitter and Facebook and other social media companies to censor certain things and, and even take people off of those platforms entirely. And that because that was action of the government and not just action of those private individuals, the first or private companies, the First Amendment is implicated and that conduct is, is illegal. So that's the claim in the case. We're representing uh, Jay Bhattacharya uh, and uh, Martin Koldorf and Aaron Cariotti. Uh, and then there's a uh, there's a, a small organization uh, in Louisiana that's a healthcare uh, organization uh, as well. Uh, and Jill Hines is the is the head of that organization, so she's the other plaintiff that we're representing there. What the discovery has shown in that case, as you were alluding to, Jan, is that there were quite extensive communications between uh, the White House and many other. So Rob Flaherty at the White House is is the one who's uh, who has been most often appearing in, in a lot of these emails and not only was there a lot of communication but a lot of it was quite explicit and even though now that they're under suit the government wants to pretend that these were suggestions or or what have you if you read these emails and they some of them are public and others will become public over the course of the lawsuit this doesn't read like a friendly suggestion from your neighborhood government this the, these read very much like you know, why the hell haven't you acted on what I told you to do yet sorts of uh, of, of kinds of dis instructions that I don't. That I think anyone, any reasonable juror, would look at that and say, "This is coercive on the part of the government. This is ordering a company to do something, not suggesting something that they might want to do." The other thing that's come out is that there were private channels created, uh, some at the behest of the government, maybe others weren't. But in any event, these these private channels of communication, special portals, were created where certain government agencies, including the FBI, could directly send information to these companies saying, check out this tweet, check out that tweet, check out this post, take down that post. The third thing that's come out now is that some of these communications took place on a platform called Signal, which uh, to the extent your audience is familiar with this, it's, it's a little bit like Snapchat in the sense that the communications disappear very quickly. Or, or they can be, can be configured to do so. It doesn't okay. have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. And so there's, there's a couple of problems with that. One is under the National Archives and Records Act, typically the government actions are supposed to be preserved and there should be a record of any of those uh, communications. 
Uh, the other thing is, you know, if we if we don't have a record of this, then there could be a spoliation of evidence uh, issue. Now, I suppose the government would say, well, we had no reason to believe that we were going to be sued over this, but a judge might not see it the same way. What What is the exfoliation of evidence again? So yeah. if you know that you're going to be sued and you have a bunch of, of evidence in your possession that shows that you're guilty of what they're going to sue you over and you destroy that, you know, you you burn the tapes or you uh, use bleach bit on a, as one example, on a, yeah. on a server, yeah. you might be accused of spoliation of evidence. You might be guilty of that. Okay, understand. Um, but you're kind of, you, in this case, they'd be kind of doing it ahead of time, just sort of planning to make sure that nothing was... Right. Available. Right. We won't make any records of, and and you know even if it's not spoliation, you might have a judge who would say, look, the fact that they deliberately set this up not to create an evidentiary trail of what they were saying or doing, you can you can use that fact as uh, as a way to or as a reason to infer that the things that they were saying here might not have been fully lawful. Fascinating. The Twitter files releases, you know, sort of subsequent to the beginning of your lawsuit, right. have really been also, I don't know if vindication is the right word, but they've added to the evidence. Presumably you actually got from the Twitter files more evidence that you can use. Is that right? That's I, absolutely right. Yeah. The, uh, the Twitter files have been immensely helpful. There's lots of information in there that, that confirms what we were already able to see from the discovery that we had obtained, uh, which is that these were v very uh, extensive communications back and forth. Something that I, I believe came out of the Twitter files that we didn't know, if I remember correctly, uh, in terms of the, the sequencing of information here, is that the FBI was actually paying these companies for some of what they were doing. Now, there's a, there's a federal statute that allows the government to pay for certain kinds of, of information. If the government is producing a search warrant, it's going to be very costly for a company to comply with that search warrant, then sometimes the government will sort of subsidize the cost of that. But that's, you certainly, there certainly isn't a statute that subsidizes companies for violating the First Amendment rights uh, of people at the government's behest. And so to the extent that the payments were being made for this unlawful conduct that was being done, that is an additional level of illegality because they were abusing this, this statute that would uh, allow for paying uh, companies in this other circumstance. Well, and something that's really interesting also uh, is that, you know, with the Twitter files, there was a huge focus on Twitter. It's just this one company, whereas, you know, when you add the discovery information that you found and you've, you know, published and add the Twitter file, you see that it's not just one company. It's kind of many company. It's a pattern, yeah. absolutely. It's a trend, yeah. it's a pattern across multiple companies. And, and even more disturbing, Jan, it's a pattern. It's not just Rob Flaherty at the White House. It's not just Elvis Chan at the FBI. It's not just uh, some of these nameless and, and faceless bureaucrats in, in other parts of the administration. There seems to have been a concerted effort across different offices uh, in the administration. And you know, I, I don't know if we know enough yet to be able to say, okay, you guys take care of Facebook and you take care of Twitter and you take care of LinkedIn or, or what have you. Uh, but there definitely seems to be a, a, a level of of communication within the government about how to achieve this goal of censoring people that I think Americans are going to find disturbing and that fortunately the First Amendment already protects them from, uh, but it takes a lawsuit like the one that NCLA is bringing to get an injunction against the government to stop it from doing the illegal conduct that it's been engaged in. So I'm, I'm just thinking about juries, right? I, I, I attended a, a, a trial where John Durham was presenting evidence here in the D.C. court I felt the case was very strong, but I, 
you know, my, my guess is, you know, that the jury was just sympathetic to the actions of the plaintiff, right? And and I can understand why too. And I, you know, based on the sort of the particular media reality that we're in, I can I kind of get it, right? Can we get juries in this day and age to actually consider the realities of law? Right? Absolutely. And and can we yeah. get judges to, to do it as well? Because. Yeah. Jury nullification is a, is a separate question. It doesn't come up as often in some of the kinds of cases that we're involved with at the New Civil Liberties Alliance because you most often have uh, juries in the criminal context. Not to say we don't have civil juries, obviously you do, uh, but a lot of the kinds of cases that we bring against the government are decided at a summary judgment phase by the judge and, and so forth, because they're legal questions rather than factual questions, and juries are really there for the factual questions and deciding the factual record. Okay, that's really interesting. But, but of course this applies, as you, I think as you just said, equally to judges. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Judges bring their priors yeah. to these things as well. And some of them are better at, at setting aside their, their biases and, than others. And you know, there was a, an expression, Trump law. And what do people mean when they mean Trump law? Well, they mean that are the judges deciding this question the same way that they would have if a different president had done the exact same conduct? And if the answer is no, they're not, well, then that's Trump. You've come up with a special rule that applies only to this president that you wouldn't apply elsewhere. Well, that's not the rule of law. That's, that's making decisions based on personalities and people rather than on what the statute and the law and the words say. And that's not something that any judge should do. And, and I won't... This I won't, is an actual term? This is, an, this is a term that people throw around. Yeah, I, Fascinating. I, you know, I don't know that it's been... Uh, I don't know that anyone's done sort of the definitive article on, on Trump law, but it wouldn't surprise there may be a law review article out there. Uh, law review articles are not widely read typically, uh, but there may be one out there that tries to, to quantify this effect because it's certainly something folks are talking about in the profession. As we continue here, you know, let's jump to this third case, which is happening at the state level now. 20, AB 2098 was a, a law passed by the California legislature uh, last year, it went into effect, it was signed by Governor Newsom, and it went into effect on uh, January 1st of 2023. And what the law said is that if, uh, if you're a doctor or uh, an, uh, either an MD or a DO, so you're either governed by the Medical Board of California or the Osteopathic Board of California, if you say something to your patients that is inconsistent with the quote unquote contemporary scientific consensus about COVID, then complaints can be made to the respective boards of medicine and your medical license is in jeopardy. They can take away your license if you, if you say these things. And I think this was uh, something that frightened a lot of doctors. Unfortunately, the Medical Board of California was complicit in this legislation being passed. Um, the problem is that when folks go to their doctor, the, the person they trust, they want that person to give their honest medical opinion specific to that individual and their circumstances, right? Your doctor knows you, they know all your other history, your medical history, how you react to different sorts of medicines or vaccines or whatever. You want their honest opinion. You don't want them to say, uh, the state of California has required that I tell you that this is perfectly safe or uh, everyone needs to get this regardless of their status. Or You're not supposed to be going to see a, a, a robot controlled by the state. You're supposed to see a, a doctor who has been highly educated and went to school for many years. The government's been wrong so often uh, during COVID about so many different things that if, if everyone was stuck obeying those rules, then there would have been a lot more death that occurred. Fortunately, there were people who broke out of that. And I'll give you, I'll give you two examples, Jan, that I think are really important for, for why this law is just 
wrong from a, from a public policy perspective. But the first is uh, one of the doctors that, that we represent, and, and Tracy Hogue is one of the five uh, doctors that we represent uh, in this case. But one of them, uh, not Tracy, uh, early on in the pandemic was treating people in the hospital who were diagnosed with COVID. And he said, you know, I don't think intubating these patients with feeding tubes or, or respirators or what have you, I'm not convinced that that's the best way to get these people healthy. At the time, the contemporary scientific consensus was intubate, that they wanted every patient that came to the hospital and, and at a certain level of, of seriousness to be intubated. Well, this, this doctor didn't do that. He refused to do that. He fought back against that consensus. He didn't intubate his patients. Well, lo and behold, Jan, his patients had much better outcomes than the people who were being intubated. Other doctors around the country were doing the same thing. And over time, the contemporary scientific consensus shifted. And now the best practice is to not intubate. Well, if you don't allow anyone to deviate from the norm and, and, and test based on their hunches and their medical training, then you don't ever get to that. And we'd still be intubating people today and we'd still be losing more people uh, to COVID in the hospital setting than we would need to be losing. And that's, that's one reason why this is really destructive. The other example I'll give you has to do with natural immunity, which there was a, there was a, a kind of a, a wry joke on Capitol Hill from uh, one of our, our clients, uh, uh, um, Dr. Koldorf, this week, where he said, look, uh, you know, we learned about natural immunity after the Athenian plague in 430 BC, and, and we, we knew about it up until uh, you know, 2020, and then we forgot about it for three years, and now we've you know, remembered it again. And the, you know, the, the, the problem is that the government was telling people that they needed to get a vaccine even if they already had had COVID and they had antibodies in their system provable from an antibody testing that they already had antibodies. Well, the whole point of a vaccine is to give you the antibodies. If you've already had COVID, in fact, the way they test a vaccine and its efficacy is to test its antibody creation versus what natural antibody creation is. They knew this from day one. This was, this was not something that they didn't know. This was something that they deliberately lied about because they thought that it would enhance the number of people who would go and get vaccines. And I, you know, I find it very disturbing that that was taking place. But there were plenty of doctors out there that were telling people, you don't need this vaccine if you have natural immunity. You already had COVID. If, you, if everyone had to tell their patients because of this law, well, you need to go ahead and get the vaccine, then you would be forcing people to violate, the doctors to violate the Hippocratic Oath. You'd be forcing them to, to deny, uh, what, uh, 2,500 years of medical knowledge. I think of it as the Sovietization of science and medicine, because this is the kind of thing you would expect in the Soviet Union uh, under you know, Lysenko or something like that. This isn't what you would expect in the United States of America where we have freedom, where we have doctors who are supposed to give their best medical opinion, where there's a First Amendment right for those doctors to share that opinion and, a first, importantly, a First Amendment right for their patients to hear the doctor's honest opinion about these things without having to fear for their medical licenses. Because how could you trust a doctor yeah. if this law is on the books for to do anything related to COVID for you? Right. One of our clients said that you know, their fear wasn't so much from their current patients because they have a, a doctor-patient trust with their current patients. And part of their fear was that any new patient that came in could be a patient who was you know, just there in order to try to get the doctor in trouble. Well, you don't want, you don't want new patients seeing a doctor for the first time to, to have their doctor take that sort of skeptical approach to, to a new patient coming in the door. That's not the way to build trust. It's not the way to get the accurate medical history about that person uh, and so forth. And so I think it's, it's really disturbing to see 
uh, this happened. The, the other thing, Jan, about this law, you say contemporary scientific consensus. Well, as, as the judge said in, in the Eastern District of California, and maybe I should mention the fact that the New Civil Liberties Alliance won an injunction against this, against this law in the Eastern District of California, and the state of California is not appealing that decision. Now, unfortunately, there were a couple of other cases brought where the state of California prevailed, and those cases are now up on appeal uh, to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. But the injunction that NCLA won is still in effect in the Eastern District of California, uh, which covers you know, Sacramento and, and sort of points, points east. Uh, but, but what is the contemporary scientific consensus? And what our judge in Judge, and I'll give him credit here, Judge Shubb said is, well, whose consensus are you talking about? The Medical Board of California? It's comprised of half doctors and half not doctors. So we're going to go with what their view is? Or are you talking about the consensus in, in Sacramento? Are you talking about the consensus in California? Are you talking about the consensus in the United States? Are you talking about the consensus among all doctors? among epidemiologists, among public health officials, and by the way, how is any one individual treating physician supposed to know what the contemporary scientific consensus is at any one point in time? That's going to be very difficult. To are we polling people? You know, who are we going to poll? How do we determine this? It's, it's really a, a, an impossible standard for any doctor to meet, and that's another reason why there's a vagueness to it that creates a First Amendment problem and a due process problem, because Doctors are entitled to due process of law, knowing ahead of time, ahead of before they say anything, whether or not what they're saying is going to get them in trouble. But there's no way to know that if, if something squirrely like contemporary scientific consensus is the standard. What, what strikes me is that it allows the state to basically exercise power somewhat arbitrarily, which is always a terrible thing. At, at least it creates the possibility for that. You know, yeah. one thing, another can, thing. Can that, I just say you hit yeah. the nail on the head there, Jan? Yeah. Because uh, it's pretty clear from the people who passed this law that they were interested in going after particular doctors, that there were people who had said things that the government didn't like about COVID, and they, th th this was the instrument that they wanted to be able to threaten those people with their medical licenses. So you're, you're absolutely right about the intent uh, of the law, I believe. When I look at all the sort of official guidelines, a pattern emerged for me over time that they were much more concerned with, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, with eliciting a particular kind of behavior. Like, we're going to deny natural immunity because we want everyone to get jabbed. It's just the simplest way to make sure everybody gets jabbed, right? Right. And, Administratively and, efficient. Right. And there's, and you know, there's sure there's, there may be a cost behind that. I don't know if someone's sitting there thinking this. They're sure there may be a cost with that, but it's worth it. And I'm just going to make that decision because we, I want this behavioral outcome. I'm not going to tell people I want this behavioral outcome explicitly. I'm going to basically create other uh, incentives and disincentives as guidance to do that. And there's so many things like this. I could, I could, you know, you, we, we could play a game and you could name one and I could tell you why I think it would be that way, right? Sure. That's my gut sense from watching a lot of just overtly really bad, bad guidance, right? That, that just ultimately hurt a lot of people and, you know, and so forth. So I just, I want to know what you think here. Well, and there's been this, this, uh, theory going maybe 20-ish years now of, of regulatory nudge. And, you know, I had a, uh, I had a professor in law school, uh, Cass Sunstein, actually taught me administrative law, among other things. Very good professor uh, and is one of the people who's been an expositor of this, this theory of, of nudge. I think that the, the concern I have and the problem I have with, with Cass's theory is when you're talking about that nudge coming from the state, it's not really a nudge anymore. It's 
you know, it's it's the it's the the boot of the state, and if you're coercing people with state power, then individuals aren't being nudged; they're being shoved and shoved hard, and in this case, shoved hard into a needle. And that's not, I think, the proper role for the government. I think there's a terrible violation of individual rights uh, that takes place there. Well, the the messaging, you know, not only created this sense that you, this is the right thing to do. But it also created this situation where there's this whole, I don't know how large portion of the population which perceives the people not complying with this as somehow amoral that's or right. bad. Oh, that's right. great. The great point. So uh, this is another lie that was told by our government, unfortunately, that that if you took the the vaccine, then you wouldn't be able to transmit the virus to anybody else. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. And so that was the, the theory is that somehow you need to do this, even if you're not worried about you dying because you're young and healthy and whatever, you need to do this for grandma. And if you're not willing to do this for grandma, then you're an evil person and you're morally wrong. Well, the thing is that that might be true for something like a smallpox virus where, the, where it actually does prevent transmission of the virus to third parties. These vaccines don't have that property. It does not prevent transmission to third parties. So. Uh, so forcing someone to get the vaccine for the benefit of someone else never had a moral element to it, and yet they were pretending that it did. Go back to college, introduction to, to, to ethics. You know, in this country, we don't take a, a healthy, live person and divide them up and give their organs to five other sick people because then we have five people who, who live and only one person dies and, instead of five people dying. That's, we consider that to be unethical behavior. But really, it's the same logic chain that would lead you to say, it's just more administratively efficient for everyone to get the jab. And yes, we know that some young and healthy people are going to get myocarditis and die, and we know that some people are going to have strokes or what have you, but you know, we think overall more people will, will live as a result of this, and therefore uh, we're gonna use the power of the state to enforce this. I mean, in other contexts, we would view that as unethical, and somehow we lost sight of that in this pandemic. So we've covered a lot here. Um, any final thoughts as we finish? Well, just I would encourage people to go to the website of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, nclalegal.org. They can find out about these cases and any of the 75 other cases uh, that we've brought against the government. Um, many of them have been in the, in the context of lockdowns or vaccine mandates and so forth, uh, but many more of them have been in, in other contexts. And we've the number of federal agencies that we, we've probably sued some federal agencies that folks haven't even heard of. So it, it's it's a trend that some of these cases, the ones we've talked about today, get to the Supreme Court. In fact, we have another case pending at the Supreme Court against the Securities and Exchange Commission right now. We argued it back in November, and we expect the decision by June. Uh, so folks can go learn more about those cases and pick their fed favorite federal agency and figure out what we might be doing to uh, hold that one in check and, and really restore constitutional guardrails around the administrative state. Well, Mark Chenoweth, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jan. Always good to be with you. Thank you all for joining Mark Chenoweth and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.